How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. What changes will our destabilized climate visit upon California in coming decades? How will our lives be affected? What are young people doing to prepare for a world with more droughts, floods, fires, and food disruptions? How do you feel about the world being passed down to them? What can they do about it? We'll discuss those issues and more in the next hour with three experts in our live and especially youthful audience here at the Commonwealth Club. Scott Harmon is an advisor to the Boy Scouts of America, which is considering ways to incorporate sustainability into its programs. Mark Hertzgard is author of Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. And Alec Lures is a 16-year-old climate activist and founder of Kids vs. Global Warming. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Uh, Mark, let's begin with you. You write about several sort of uh-oh moments when you first realized the severity, use a different phrase in print that we can't use on radio. Uh, what are the moments where you realize the severity and magnitude of the climate situation? It's been, it's been funny, Greg, to hear uh, on the various shows on this book tour how the euphemisms that people use. You're the first for a different word that we can't say here. I've heard oh shucks moments. Okay, that's yours is, yours is the first for, for that one. Um, well, the, the scene that actually set me to writing this book uh, took place on the Westminster Bridge in London over the River Thames in October of 2005, uh, which was uh, just a few months after my daughter was born, and I became a father for the first time. And I was on assignment in London for Vanity Fair doing a piece for their first green issue about global warming, and I interviewed Sir David King, who's the chief science advisor to the British government at that point. And I had been covering climate change for 15 years by then and thought I knew the story pretty well. And during that time, climate change was always this distant, far-off possibility, something we could prevent if we got our act together. And that had been the debate through the 90s and into the, the new century. And when I saw David King that day, he completely shattered that framing of the problem and said that, in fact, global warming had triggered outright climate change and had done so a hundred years sooner than the scientists had expected. And, of course, the worst part of that is that once climate change has been triggered, you cannot turn it off very quickly. The inertia of the climate system, the lag effect, meant... As Sir David said, that uh, basically it was going to be 50 years, even if we do everything right, and uh, you know, we know what that means in terms of solar and efficiency and all that, but even so, the lag effect meant that the temperatures were going to keep going up for at least 50 years. And of course, as the temperatures continue to go up, the impacts, the droughts, the storms, the floods, the heat waves, the sea level rise will also intensify. So this was a paradigm shift of the climate problem. No longer was it this thing off in the future terribly dangerous that we could prevent, 
Now it was here. And so the very first quote in my book comes from a, a different British scientist who says that uh, working on climate change used to be about saving future generations. And now, he said to me, it's not only your daughter who's at risk, it's probably you as well. And when I left that interview that day and walked down past Big Ben to kind of clear my head and over the, the river, I heard the cries of laughs of, of children who were on the, uh, the Ferris wheel there just across the river, and it reminded me that I was now a new dad and that my daughter was going to have to live through this. And that is a moment I will never forget. And I didn't know then that I would write this book, but I did decide at that point that I had to do everything I could to understand what was coming and to find a way for her and the rest of her generation in this country and overseas to live through the significant amount of climate change that is now locked in. So that was my first oh shucks moment. And we'll get into some of those effects in a moment. Uh, Scott Harmon, it worked the other way around for you. Your son awakened or activated you. How did that happen? Well, my, uh, my son John is uh, uh, actually an Eagle Scout, and I was in scouting with him. And so he's a great outdoorsman. Uh, and he was quietly, uh, had a set of habits that uh, I was noticing but uh, ignoring. And so Not he, flush in the toilet. You said you wouldn't say that. Oh, I didn't say it. <laughs> uh, that was one. Uh, you know, turning the water off behind everyone in the house, turning the lights off, making me use both sides of the paper. So, I mean, he was doing all of these things, and uh, one day in a fit of frustration, I just said, you know, what, what are you doing? And, uh, and he explained it to me. And so that was the seed. And uh, I, I work at Trimble Navigation. We do a lot of uh, GPS-related things for fleets, uh, for large corporations, which saves a lot of fuel. And so at the same time, I was dealing with those business cases. And I was asked to do uh, a, a speech at a, a Tremble event about uh, you know, green and fleets and how that all played together. So for the first time, I opened Inconvenient Truth. Uh, and I started looking at the charts. And just like you, uh, I, was, I was mortified. Because uh, I'm an engineer, and so when I saw the data and I saw the trends, uh, all of a sudden it took on a uh, new meaning for me. So it was my son that, that, uh, that planted the seed, and it was, uh, it was that book uh, and my work that sort of converged. And that was maybe three years ago, and I've, I haven't been the same since. I'm just like you, Mark. I've been, you know, every waking moment I think about what's the highest and best use of you know, where I am and what I'm doing and uh, where's the leverage and scouting is one of the you know, big leverage points. And we'll get to that. Alec Lures, uh, you're 16 now. You've been a climate activist for a couple of years now. You have a good, part, good career behind you already. Uh, when did you first become activated or aware about the climate situation? Yeah, so uh, it really started kind of for me when I was 12, <laughs> four years ago. Um, and that's when I saw An Inconvenient Truth, which is, I've, I've heard it's a kind of awakening moment for a lot of people. But um, kind of before I saw that movie, we were never really you know, environmentally, you know, whatever, family. We, we barely recycled. Um, but when I saw that film, I realized, you know, I, I just heard about all the things that Gore was talking about, and I realized that 
my generation is going to have to grow up and live in this world that he was talking about. And, and it's, it's my generation and my peers who are going to have to face those consequences and will be more affected than, than, than anyone else. Um, and I, I knew I kind of wanted to do something about this, about this crisis. And um, actually, I, I went to school that next day and was kind of talking about global warming to all of my friends and just kind of I became like the global warming kid after couple days. Um, but one of my best friends at school, got we got into this heated argument like during lunchtime and he was kind of going into all the, you know, this is just a natural cycle. Al Gore is crazy kind of stuff. Um, Wait, these are 12-year-olds? Yes, these are 12-year-olds. Yes. He <laughs> came from a conservative family. But um, just kind of, and we both didn't really know what we were talking about, but it was just kind of like this, <laughs> this super heated debate. But all I had really learned was just from seeing Inconvenient Truth. And um, I actually went home that night and I, I stayed up till like two in the morning just researching everything I could possibly learn about climate change. And I just, and I was researching all this stuff about, you know, all the scientists and looking up IPCC reports and things like that. Just kind of, and I made this PowerPoint uh, with, with all the stuff I was learning and I brought it back to my friend. I printed it out and I brought it back to my friend that next day um, <laughs> to, kind of, to basically just to kind of prove him wrong because I, I've, I've always, I, would, I had always really been into arguing with people. But, um, but when I, when I was doing that research that night and when I was realizing, you know, just the, the urgency of this crisis, that's really when I realized this really is what I want to be doing and this is what I feel called to be doing. Um, and I, I heard that Al Gore was going to be training like a thousand people to give a, a version of his slideshow that he's been giving for years. And um, so I decided I'm going to go on the website and apply to be one of those, one of those presenters. Um, but I was 12, <laughs> so they, they turned me down. They told me I was too young. It's just this little this message came back, sorry, you're too young. Um, and I was like, God. Um, but I just decided, you know, I'm not going to really let that bother me. I'm just I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> so um, I, I created a presentation from, from scratch, and I began to get, I, I gave it, by the time I gave my first one, I was 13, and it just kind of exploded after that. I was getting invited to different events, and um, Actually, I, I ended up, by miracle, getting to meet Al Gore a couple of years later, and he invited me to his next training session, and I became <laughs> the, the youngest trained presenter of his Inconvenient Truth presentation, um, which that, you know, that, that title's now been taken away a couple times because there are so many youth you know, getting involved in this movement. But that's, and, and since then, I've just been traveling around the, the country giving these presentations. <laughs> I've spoken to probably over 150,000 people now just, just talking about you know, what's going on with, with our planet, the fact that we're affected more than anyone else. And, and yeah, when, when I first heard about climate change, when I first heard about this stuff, I, um, I just went straight to kind of doing something about it and, and taking action, and I skipped over you know, despair and denial and stuff. And it's just kind of taken till the last couple months to, to, hit, to kind of hit that, that space and been struggling with it a little bit. But I can talk more about that later. But that's basically... Well, let's talk yeah. about how you all think that change will be affected. Alec, you believe that it's going to be through direct action rather than... And I want to get Scott in here about whether change happens through establishment organizations. But Alec, mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that, that you know, going to Congress and pressuring legislators is the way to happen? Or do you think they need to be marching in the streets? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, no matter, no matter what we do, it's going to be hard. Just, just thinking about all the odds we have against us and things like that, it's going to be hard to change this. And I don't, you know, there's a lot, there's a ton of ideas going around, and I don't really think that, you know, um, changing light bulbs and riding bikes to work every day is, is going to solve this, this problem. I mean, I'm not even close to an, an expert, but 
I think that really what it's going to take is, is people standing up for what they know is right. Because throughout history, you know, history has, has proven that when people stand up and, and, and march and join together with other people who think like them and, and tell the world what they believe, that seems to be more powerful than, than individual actions or going to, to government with specific legislation and stuff like that. So um, I really do think that, that what it's going to take is, is a, a revolution, you know, not, not like a violent you know, Molotov cocktails through the windows kind of revolution, but a, a revolution that, that you know, ignites the, the compassion in people's hearts so that they realize that, that the way that we're doing things now is, is not right and it doesn't live with, with the survival of my generation and with future generations in mind. Um, and I'm actually working on the, the um, I'm planning this this event for Mother's Day of this year called the I Matter March, and um, it's you know youth from all over the world will be coming together and marching in their streets to let the world know that that we really do care about what's going on with our planet, and we're demanding that our entire society lives as if our future matters. And there's going to be marches all over the world in, in different communities. There's a, there's a big march planned for for San Francisco. Um, but it's basically youth coming together and saying, you know, climate change is not about money, it's not about power, it's not about convenience or, or political agendas or anything. It's about our survival, and it's about the, the survival of, of this and every generation to come. And just, just making that point and saying, you know, we need to live um, and, and value nature and future generations just as much as, as money and power and, and short-term interests. So that, I think, is... is I think. Because, you know, youth, we have the, the moral authority to say to people, to say to our parents and our leaders and our teachers, things like, you know, do I matter to you? Does, does my future matter to you? And I really do think that youth standing up and, and, and showing the ruling generation that we care about this, I think that would be more powerful than, than any lobbyist or government agenda or multi-billion dollar fossil fuel corporation. Um, so that, that's, that's a huge thing of, of what we're doing. There's also a big legal action, which I could talk about, that, that's also going along with, uh, that, we're, that we're working with, with, with this march, you know, actually holding governments accountable for, um, for the fact that they're not acting in, in our best interest and they're, they're destroying the planet that we need to survive. And, um, Let's just, get to the court thing. Yeah, so. Mark Hirschgard, you've covered this a long time. You were in Rio in 92. You've seen sort of the long arc of some progress, some, some backsliding. What do you think has been most successful? Has it been negotiations, government policy, public pressure? What's the best lever that you've seen in your time, two decades, covering yeah. this? <clears throat> well, I'd say it varies by country. Uh, you know, in, we in America have a very uh, distorted view of this. Mm-hmm. We're the only major country that is still resisting action on this. So I think asking your question, Greg, about how we get change has a different answer here than it does in other countries. You know, in Europe, for example, uh, you've got right-wing governments in Germany, Britain, and France right now who are so far out ahead of anything being talked about in Washington mm-hmm. that it's, it just sort of boggles the mind. Here in the United States, what will make change, I think it's, it's generally a mixture of things. Of course, at the end of the day, you do need government action in the legislative and executive branches and the judicial branch, of course. But what will create that action is the question, I think. I mean, one of the things that needs to be done, quite clearly, 
by government is to uh, limit the greenhouse gas emissions. One great way to do that would be to put a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. And you can do that either directly through taxation or indirectly through regulation. We here in California, in fact, I remember right up here on the stage, sitting out in the audience and covering an event up here where a number of the Silicon Valley leaders uh, were talking about that as a good thing, that they want to see that in order to drive the investment. Why? Because they know perfectly well that China and Germany are already very close to capturing those markets for good for the next 50 years. So, again, we return to, so how do you get action in Washington? Because for 20 years, that has been a completely stopped up uh, uh, dead end on climate and that's, I think, largely because of the enormous power of corporations in general within the American system, which is a much greater power than exists in Europe, and specifically, in our case, the power of fossil fuel corporations, which, let's remember, that is the richest industry in the history of the world, the oil companies in particular. They are the richest business enterprise in the history of humanity. It is not surprising that they have enormous political power. My reading of American history is that the only way that you overcome that kind of entrenched uh, money power, if you will, is through sustained and very um, determined people power. And in particular, grassroots political organizing and marching. I think Alec is exactly right that this has to become a moral issue. If you look at the big shifts in our history, whether it was getting the vote for women or uh, the civil rights movement, or uh, the uh, movement against the war, or the early years of the environmental movement. It was not people just going to Congress and saying, oh, please do the right thing. They did that, but they also backed it up with people marching in the streets. And I think we are going to have to see that again and that kind of grassroots uh, political pressure. Because politicians... This is not a slam on them you know, as moral individuals. I, I've spent a lot of my career in Washington covering these politicians. If you understand how much the pressure on any member of Congress is from moneyed interests, it is so profound. It is very hard for them to do anything outside of that unless they can point and say, look, I'm sorry, Mr. Exxon or Mr. GE or Mr. whoever, uh, but look at all those people in the streets. Or look at the election returns at the last elections, and you'll see we've got to do something about this. So I think that that's um, really uh, uh, probably the most fertile direction going forward. I think it's unfortunate that most of the mainstream environmental movement seems to have forgotten that. But hopefully marches like uh, Alex and, and other kind of grassroots organization uh, actions can remind them. Uh, just very briefly put in here that we have had a great victory in the fight against climate change. We have stopped new coal-fired power plants in this country over the last three years. There have been about 150 of them blocked or canceled. You have not heard about it in the mainstream media, have you? Um, but it happened. It happened because of grassroots political action at the local level, coordinated nationally by the Sierra Club, which is headquartered just a couple blocks from here, and bringing together quite a diverse range of, uh, of political organizations, from nurses and the American Lung Association to environmentalists to labor and church leaders and students and local uh, elected officials. And I think that that kind of 
victory, keeping all of that carbon out of the air, is something that should give us a lot of hope and encouragement, but also cause us to focus on that kind of grassroots political activism and the kind of thing that Alec is talking about uh, to really, whether you call it a revolution or, or other words, we clearly need a fundamental shift in our society's approach to this. We're discussing youth and uh, climate change at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Mark Hertzgard is author of Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Other other guests are Alec Lures, a 16-year-old climate activist, and Scott Harmon, advisor to Boy Scouts of America. Scott, um, are the Boy Scouts, how are they going to come in on this? Are they going to be part of, uh, we're going to see Boy Scouts marching in the streets? Are they going to come at it a different way? Well, I, I'll tell you what I think. I don't know exactly what's going to happen yet. Um, uh, well, first let me tell you what, what we're doing. Um, uh, there are a group of about 10 of us, uh, all Eagle Scouts, in uh, various walks of life uh, that I've pulled together over the past year to look at this opportunity with scouts. Um, the chairman of the World Scout Organization lives in the Bay Area, and I was introduced to him recently uh, after my son had converted me to a zealot. And uh, <laughs> he told me something that just blew my mind. And, and you know, I knew there were a few million scouts in the U.S., and uh, I really had no idea what the world picture was. But uh, he told me there are 100 million scouts in the world today active in scouting. And that's like... And that's active, not just I was a scout. No, no, no. These are active, you know, young people, boys and girls in scouting all over the world. There are 70 million in China. There are well, 25 million. Yeah. There are 25 <laughs> million, million outside of China and the U.S. There's there's about five million you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in the U.S. And so, you know, that number just is amazing to me. So that must I mean it has to be the biggest youth organization on the planet. Uh, I mean, of course it is, and by you know a couple orders of magnitude maybe. So I got to thinking. You know, I I was in Scouts when I was a kid, and I loved it, and I'm still connected to it. I was a Scoutmaster for six years. I just got to thinking, you know, here is a massive resource that's 100 years old. It stood the test of time. It, uh, one of its founding uh, platform uh, elements is conservation. Uh, they're all about the outdoors. And I said, but they're not doing anything about sustainability. That's crazy. So I, I decided that, uh, just like you were on the bridge, I decided at 2 in the morning when I woke up with this idea in my head, I have no idea where it came from, you know, who knows, uh, that I had to do this. So uh, I've been working on it for a year, and so what I'm hoping that scouting will do is, uh, is take the existing structures of rank advancement and uh, you know, projects and hands-on learning and, and, and leadership and... Uh, and embrace uh, the problems that we know about related to climate change, related to population growth, related to energy independence, all those problems about food and water and e-waste and waste and forests and oceans and food supplies, and you know, all those problems, and, uh, and learn about the problems, learn about the impact of the problems, and learn about the solutions. So that, and they may march in the streets, I don't know, but... I want to get them educated, and I want to get them, I want to get their hands dirty, you know, doing projects that teach them about the problem or teach them about the solution so that two things can happen. Uh, one, that they do what my son did for me, which is wake up their parents. Uh, 
So, you know, in a perfect world, if 100 million scouts woke up 200 million parents and 200 million siblings, you'd have a half a billion people that knew what to do. And they could walk in the streets, but they'd know what to do as well. And that's the first thing I'm hoping for. The second thing I'm hoping for is that when they get in the workplace, you know, in five or ten years, that they will be well-educated and uh, global, sustainable citizens, and they will force their businesses and their places of work, whatever that is, to conform to what has to be done. So, I mean, it, it just occurred to me that we're not going to get it done in, in our generations, even your generation probably. So we better get the next generation and the one behind that ready. Otherwise, we're really toast. And some Eagle Scouts currently are in very influential positions of power in this country. Are they part of the activation that you hope for? I mean, in the quarters of power? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've talked to uh, uh, Senator Richard Luger, who is um, uh, a distinguished Eagle Scout, about this. Uh, we met in Washington for an hour in uh, December. And he loves this. He's, you know, if you look at what he's standing for, energy independence, he acknowledges climate change as an issue, and he's very concerned about population growth. So all three pieces of, of uh, you know, planet, uh, profit, and people are in his mind. And there are 20 other Eagle Scouts in Congress, and he wrote a letter uh, that we worked on together, and he sent it to them, letting them know of what we were doing. So they're not doing anything yet, but they're on notice. And so uh, what we've essentially done is, uh, through some very senior people at AT&T that are involved in scouting, I got uh, our proposal uh, submitted to the National Scout Organization. And uh, it's, it's now uh, being considered in, in the five-year planning process for scouting, which is looking back at the last 100 years and looking forward to the next 100 years to figure out what needs to be done to change the program to make it you know, extremely relevant for today's issues and to, uh, to make it compelling and interesting to lots more young people and lots more parents and to give it uh, a charter and a mission that is critical. Scouting had very important roles in World War I and World War II you know, related to recycling and raising money for various needs that the government had. And, the government called on scouting uh, many times in the, in the World War I, World War II area and hasn't done so since. Hmm. So I don't think government's going to call on scouting now. They should. There's 100 million people ready to go do something. So, you know, I'm going to try to make sure that, uh, that one of those organizations picks it up and runs with it, and then the rest of them, you know, pick it up as a virus. Alec Lewis, do you welcome scouts into your, your movement? Yes, that would be awesome. Yeah, there you go, yes. man. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm going to quit my job, and we're going to go do it. It's yes, exactly. 100 a, billion kid march. <laughs> Mark, you, you've been an astute observer of politics for a long time. Do you think something like some Eagle Scouts in Congress, can, can that sway people? I would say uh, it's always very important when you have big cultural institutions shifting like this, and actually, as I was listening to Scott speak, I was thinking about how, uh, over the last few years, we've seen uh, similar attempts to do this within the spiritual and religious communities, mm -hmm. sure. which are often seen as uh, uh, not so interested, let's say, mm -hmm. to put it politely, in these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, there have been some sort of um, unusual individuals there who are pushing that. 
And if it's at all similar, there'll probably be some pushback and some splits. I imagine that you will probably encounter within the Boy Scout organization some resistance. I would say, in particular, to the question of, of you know, will it push uh, government action? A lot is going to depend on what Senator Luger does. If Senator Luger decides to, he could make a big uh, splash with this, especially if there's a similarly senior Democrat. Right. If, on the other hand, he, as with no disrespect meant, but as so often happens in Washington, they'll say, okay, well, I'll write a letter and end of story, then not much will come of it. But that, again, goes back to what we were saying before. That's where one has to be insistent. And if that's all that the senator does, then you have to somehow find a way to remind the senator that we really expect him to do a little more. That's right. Let's talk about another the positive aspect of this for, for young people. Mark, you often talk about the jobs and the opportunities that will come about. And I want to talk a little bit here about adaptation and sort of the we can try to slow climate change, but even if we do that successfully, some change is still coming our way here in the Bay Area. So let's get to that. But first, the jobs, Mark. Uh, what kind of job opportunities, before we put our, our, our uh, audience here into total depression, what, you know, what kind of uh, bright side, if, if any, is there in this? Look, there's an enormous bright side to this. That's that, that one of the great lies about this is somehow that we can't afford to fix it. Right? That's, you're hearing that this week, by the way, in, in Washington uh, from mainly uh, House Republicans who are also trying to repeal the science on climate change. There'll be a vote tomorrow on that. And their argument is always, oh, this is going to cost too much. This is a big tax increase. The truth is not, the truth is that it's not that this is too expensive. We can't afford not to do this. And when we get that through our heads, um, as our, again, our, our capitalists down in Silicon Valley know perfectly well, we will open up such enormous economic opportunities. And I always say that when I go to <clears throat> speak at colleges, because, of course, that's the main thing on college kids' mind. How am I going to get a job when I get out? And so what kind of jobs will there be? They'll be pretty much in any particular field. Because if you think about it, the challenge in front of us over the next 20 years is to completely revamp our systems of energy and agriculture and transportation and building and, and, and. And again, we have most of the technologies at hand. We know most of what needs to be done. It's a question of redirecting resources. And once we do that, there will be jobs in, it pretty much doesn't really matter what you're studying, but a lot of engineers, for sure, we're going to need a lot of engineers, mm -hmm. economists, lawyers, teachers, People with languages will be important, uh, chemists, all kinds of scientists. Um, and I really, if writers, uh, you, you'll need, I, I can't really think of a field uh, of study in a college or university now where there will not be opportunities because we're going to have to not only revamp how we produce energy, but we're also going to have to rebuild our society to prepare for these impacts. So here in the Bay Area, we are going to have to prepare for at least three feet of sea level rise. Somebody's going to have to figure out what we do to keep San Francisco and Oakland airports functioning because three feet of sea level rise left unattended will put them underwater. And we'll also have to figure out uh, the other big problem facing California will be the loss of the snowpack atop the Sierra Nevada mountains, which is the source water. of much of our fresh water. And so we are going to need experts who are going to work that problem. And it's very much, I think, I was cheered by, Senate, by President Obama's State of the Union speech in one respect, uh, which was he started talking about the Sputnik moment. And of course, the Sputnik moment is what led to 
the Apollo program. And that kind of focus is what we need. In fact, in my book, Hot, I call for a uh, green Apollo program. That's what we need. And I think if we were to focus the energies of the country, and especially the young people, I mean, you look at, you look at Alec and the kind of passion that he brings, and I hear that from a lot of young people that I speak to, um, they are ready to go out and, and tackle this problem. They know they don't have much choice, but they're ready to go out and do it. And I think if we uh, grown-ups do our part and shift our government policy and shift where we're putting economic resources and get behind these kids, they're going to work out these problems. Alec, are you inspired? Do you see opportunity here, or is it? Oh, yes. Actually, first of all, just you mentioned the, the Apollo program. Um, uh, I talk about in my presentations all the time how um, when, when JFK first issued that challenge that you know we're going to put a man on the moon in ten years, you know people thought that was that was crazy. And then when we finally did it, you know we did it in eight years. Um, and if you look at the the mission control room in Houston, Texas. Right after you know Neil Armstrong took that first small step for man onto the moon, um, the average age of the men in, in you know responsible for putting a man on the moon that day was 26. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That means when JFK issued his challenge, they were 18, and half of them were under 18. Wow. So that, that, that was young people who did that. You know, we we as young people were the ones responsible for putting a man on the moon. That is a <laughs> and, great story. And actually, w- with that program, one of the first things that they focused on is education and getting the young people involved because you know, the, the, the creative energy and, and the dedication and the passion that you know, defines our generation is, is one of the most powerful things that we have. And one of the most, um, you know, we can be the most powerful force in the world. We can, we can do anything. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's so exciting to kind of, and, and we're, we're, we're facing a similar challenge right now. You know, everyone is saying, we have, we have 10 years, we have five years, we have, you know, we're, we're quickly running out of time to solve this crisis. But I really do think that, that this entire generation is, is born with this sense of calling and this passion, you know, already almost subliminally inside of them. Uh, but all it takes is just kind of sparking that, that, that flame and they're ready to do whatever it takes to, to change the world. So. Some people believe that this gener- young generations, people in their teens and 20s, are, are willing to hold those values and they're willing to express them as consumers and what they purchase and how they live their life. And maybe they don't aspire to own a car the way Mark and, and Scott and I probably did when we were teenagers. A lot of youth don't own cars. Yeah. But when it comes to political activism, they're apathetic or they're not. They're, they're very distrusting of the political process. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? A little bit. I mean... Just in my experience, whenever I mention to young people, you know, about marching in the streets or, or getting involved in the climate change movement or whatever, they're just they're just ready. I mean, there's I've I've spoken to you know, tens of thousands of young people, and, and everywhere I go, there's always kids, you know, standing up and saying, you know, I'm I'm ready to do whatever it takes, and there are kids ready to be marching, and, and there are kids getting ready to march, <laughs> and. Um, but these are these because, are people who come to your events, so they're they're pre-selected in a way. Yeah, but uh, you know, even in, in uh, communities where you wouldn't really really expect that, like this one um, this this one story, I spoke at this really conservative community in, in Orange <laughs> County in like Yukaipa, and um, this really conservative community. I was going to give this presentation um, to to a high school there, and the teachers beforehand, they were saying I was bringing political propaganda and stuff like that, and they were going to like pick it outside my presentation. That would have been awesome. <laughs> um, 
too bad I chickened out. Um, but in that presentation, there were like 750 kids there beforehand. They were all just like shouting out. You know, when I mentioned Al Gore, they were like, Al Gore is a liar and stuff like that. But then by the time I was finished, they were completely silent. And, and when I asked for questions at the end, everyone was pointing to the guy who yelled out the Al Gore thing, but he just shook his head and he was, he was silent. And then afterward, the, you know, there, there were 750 kids at that event. And afterward, 500 of them signed up to be part of an action team that day. <laughs> So that just shows that you know, no matter where these kids are coming from, no matter where, what backgrounds they have, they, they have the, this passion inside of them. And you know, even if their parents or if they don't agree with it politically, um, they know that this is, this is what we need to be doing. And it's, it's not a political issue. It's not a matter of, of, of Republican or Democrat or whatever. Uh, like I, I spoke in Salt Lake City at a bunch of schools there. Um, and, and people and, and the adults and the kids and everyone were saying, and I frame it as, you know, this is not just about climate change, it's about sustainability, which, which I define as living as if the future matters. So it's, it's living our lives in a way that values nature and future generations, you know, just as much as short-term interests. And when people think about it like that, they're just, you know, it's just the right thing to do. So it's wherever I've, I, I go, I've, I've seen that these, these kids just have this passion inside of them. Well, and let's remember, too, you don't need a majority to change society. It's usually not the majority. Right. As Margaret Mead said, it's a minority that changes the society, a minority that gets energized and organized. And one thing, again, speaking on behalf maybe of the youth, they elected this president. They elected the current president. Not most of them, but millions of young people who got active on behalf of that president and uh, that candidate in 2008 and worked to get people out to vote is why Barack Obama got elected president. It's an odd thing that he has done so little on climate change, and I'm not so sure that they will do that again in 2012 if he doesn't up his game. But the fact is, is that young people, I think, there's a significant minority of them who are willing to do this and have changed the course of American history already once, and let's hope they do it again. Mark Hertzgar is author of Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Our other guests at Climate One today are Alec Lures, a 16-year-old climate activist, and Scott Harmon, advisor to the Boy Scouts of America. I'm Greg Dalton. We're about to go to audience questions. Uh, we can get the mic out there. Alec, we skipped over the judicial issue, so I want to touch on what's happening in the courts and what do you yes. hope will outcome of uh, the judicial branch that hasn't happened in the, in the legislative and executive branches. Yeah, so... Um, you know, scientists say that, or a lot of people say that, you know, the, the executive and um, legislative branches are so caught up in, you know, the, the political game and with corporations and stuff, and it's just so hard to make anything happen but there. But the, but the one place that there hasn't been much effort is, is in the judicial branch. So um, kind of working with this march, another aspect of it is, is we're working with... Um, we're working to bring this, this case to the courts and actually hold governments accountable for the fact that they're not you know, acting with our best interests in mind. And we're filing lawsuits in um, states all across America and in, in over 30 other countries around the world saying that you know, um, these governments need to, to protect the, the atmosphere and, and the, the nature for our generation. And, and it's, it's, we're standing up for our right to a healthy and just world and to a planet that we can live in and to, to you know, air that we can breathe. And, um, you know, all, all, of these, all of these lawsuits uh, have youth as plaintiffs and, um, and, you know, kids 
representing our generation and saying that you know, they, they haven't been acting with our best interests in mind because we, as youth, we, we, we can't vote, we can't compete with wealthy corporate lobbyists, so really the only power that we have is, you know, the only thing we can do is trust our government to make decisions on our behalf, but it's, it's become clear that they're not being a good trustee. So we are actually bringing this case to the courts and, and saying that we need our future to be a top priority and, and our survival to be a top priority and, and holding the government accountable for the fact that it, it hasn't been. And uh, a big part of that is, is um, Jim Hansen, Dr. Jim Hansen from NASA. He just released this, this report that's about you know, how we can get to 350 parts per million, which is what it's going to take to avoid the worst effects of, of climate change. And it says it calls for, if, if we could... Or, 350 parts per million carbon concentration. Yes, yeah, carbon co- concentration. Right now we're at 389, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, and we're just quickly rising. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was like 280, I don't know the exact number, 270. 270. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Who are the defendants in this trial? Or is it governments? Um, Who are you suing? It's governments, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is actually the governments. In the state governments, there's a, there's a big federal case, which I'm the plaintiff on, and then federal governments and, and governments all around the world um, with, with you know, the youth, at, uh, youth as the, the plaintiff. So, yeah. There was and and, and I, I see the moral dimension of this, but there needs to be a judicial dimension. What is the legal basis for a government to say they have to protect their youth. Yeah, uh, it's, it's I, I probably couldn't explain it. There are actually a couple people here who, who are helping with that. Um, I, I couldn't explain it too well, but it's this, um, it's this theory um, called atmospheric trust litigation developed by a professor at the University of Oregon um, that, that basically says, uh, I, I'm, I'm totally going to butcher this if I, if I talk about it, but it, it, it says that the governments need to preserve you know, atmosphere uh, and nature for future generations because you know, it, it's protecting it as a commons, and, and it's, it's this, this trust law kind of thing. But it's, it's basically saying that we need to, to protect the atmosphere for future generations, and they're not, they're not doing that right now. So, so the lawsuits are saying you need to commit to this 5%. Oh, I, I don't think I got to the second half of that <laughs> Jim Hansen thing. Um, his paper calls for we need to do 5% reduction per year until we get to, to 350 parts per million. That's if we start now. Uh, and if you think about it like that, you know, 5% per year, that doesn't seem crazy. Uh, if, you, if you say like 80% by 2050 or whatever people are, are talking about, it just seems kind of like off in, in the future. But talking about 5% per year, that just kind of seems more manageable. And also, you know, if we wait, it also talks about if we, if we wait for 10 years, then it'll be, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but if we wait, it'll be like 30% per year, then 50% per year. And it just gets more... It's more difficult yeah. to do it the longer we wait. So that, that's, that's what we're doing. <coughs> yeah. Make a comment? Uh, that's, the 5% for you is really interesting because it sort of makes it in manageable chunks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's uh, just sort of two ideas. There's a place called the Carbon War Room uh, in Washington, and it's run by a guy named Jagar Shaw, who's also an Eagle Scout, as it turns out. Really? And, yeah, and he's, uh, he's taking tough problems that make sense to solve, but people aren't solving them for whatever reason, and then uh, putting 20 people in a room for a few days to sort of brainstorm, how do you create a market force uh, or some new mechanism to, to make people want to solve that problem? So uh, an example of that is uh, all of the, the ships that carry containers across the ocean back and forth. You know, Some of them are really efficient engines. Some of them are really, really bad. And nobody seemed to care. They didn't, they didn't care which ones they used. And so 
he uh, basically organized ships into A, B, and C categories and said, don't use Cs, and he had the people that pay to use the ships you know, stop using Cs, and all of a sudden the problem was solved. There's a similar uh, situation that he and I are talking about. Uh, there's 300 million uh, vehicles in the corporate fleets around the world, and if every vehicle uh, used one gallon per fuel less per day, and there are lots of ways to do that, the carbon footprint of the planet would go down by 2.5%. 2.5%. That's a huge number. Mm. So, you know, four or five guys can go sit, put their heads together and figure out how to make that happen, and all of a sudden things are moving. If, if uh, 10 million scouts uh, teach their parents, like my son did me, to change to, see, uh, to LED light bulbs and, uh, you know, to change their behaviors in driving, you know, that would make a huge difference. So there, you know, there are probably 10 things that could be done that can be done by a small group of people, you know, and then... You know, create some you know, bow wave or, or viral effect as you're doing uh, that can motivate people uh, and, and show them that it's possible to, to, to knock down 5% or 10%, you know, to get below, you know, the, to get down to 350. Scott Harbin's an advisor to the Boy Scouts of America. We're discussing youth and climate change at Climate One. Uh, do I see people in line for the, the question? <coughs> sure. Yes, sir. Alex, does your organization have a staff and members, and how are you funded? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Great question. Yeah, we're just beginning uh, this last couple of months to hire people and bring people on to to help us. Um, for the first long part of our journey, the, the only people working on it were my mom and I. It's right there, <laughs> and and she's now working on it full time. But we're now bringing people on. Uh, couple people or someone here who's, who's helping us but um, we're, we're bringing people on to help and uh, we're, we're a nonprofit under Earth Island Institute and we are funded by donations and grants and nice people <laughs> and people who, who want to help out so um, yeah that, that's a we yeah we're, we're focusing on that now and that's a that's a big priority for what we're working on now leading up to this March so yeah uh, next question please the climate change skeptics seem to try to ignore all the science. Are there any kind of scientific findings that might convince them? Is there something they could find, like Antarctic ice sheet falling off or Greenland ice cap melting or something that would convince them otherwise? No. I think Governor Schwarzenegger said recently, if they're not convinced by now, they're not going to. Right. Yeah. These are people who have long ago decided they're not going to believe in this, right. for economic reasons in some cases. In many cases, among the new Republican majority on Capitol Hill, it's ideological reasons. They object to government taxation and government regulation, and they work backwards from there to cherry-pick science so that they don't have to believe in climate change. Because if you have to believe in climate change, you are going to inevitably have more government involvement in the economy. And if at this point you don't believe it, it's because you've made up your minds that you're going to stick to your story, whatever the facts. Because, like, literally over 98% of all the scientists in the world agree that, that man-made climate change is a problem. So it's not, there's not disagreement in the, in the scientific community, even though the media says that there is. It's just these people choosing to, to deny it. And, and plus, with, with kind of with the public, there's a lot of people who, who chooses to deny it as well because it's just it's easier. It's, it's easier just for someone to tell you on TV this is not a problem, and you go, oh, phew, that's, that's good. I don't have to worry about it. It's, it's easy, and that's why it's been so hard to, to take action on this, and that's why we haven't, haven't been successful yet. So, uh. 
psychologists talk about the optimism bias. Bad things happen to other people. Oh, yeah. Uh, next question, please. Yes, uh, I wanted to ask Alec and uh, also the whole panel. Um, Earth Island is, of course, an umbrella for a lot of environmental organizations. I'm involved myself with transition towns in San Francisco and Berkeley. So how can those of us who are already involved and aren't younger people ourselves uh, help without getting in the way? Well, we need, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> I mean, uh, on, on, on one level, there's, um, you know, anyone can march, whether, you know, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers on behalf of young people. Uh, and, and at the next level, we need partners. And this whole, whole march is, is happening through partnerships and, and working with people and, and, you know, organizations and, and businesses and people from all over the world who, who want to help support this movement, and so that that's that's a uh, another level as well. But we really do need all help, all, all help we can get. <laughs> so, next question, please. We're discussing uh, youth and climate change at Climate One. Yes. Hi, my name is Ross Siegel. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us. You get so many smart people with huge megaphones, constantly acting as broken records, talking about what a huge problem this is on a daily basis. Ninety-eight percent of the scientists agree, as you say. Why are so many people still against this? I mean, it's one thing to say that Exxon's behind it, but I think there's other forces at work, too. And I'm curious as to why this process of change has moved at such a glacial pace, for lack of a better term. Is it economics? Is it no better alternatives that people know about? Is it lack of information? Is Is there one answer? Are there many answers? Mark, you've been studying this a long time. I think there's many answers, and again, I would reemphasize a point I made earlier. It is really only in this country that you would be even asking that question. They've long ago decided in the rest of the world that they need to, to move on this, and the rest of the world would have moved a lot farther than they have already if this country had moved. Had Washington agreed, uh, you would have seen a deal uh, at uh, Copenhagen, for example, that would have made a real dent in this problem. Uh, so I think we really have to look back to Washington as the, should be the focus of your question. Because, again, here in California, think about it. Uh, we have been one of the world's leaders in the fight against climate change. And we did that beneath uh, during the, the reign of a, a Republican governor who stood up to the rest of his party, Governor Schwarzenegger, and, uh, and said, we know the science is, is uh, here and it's clear and we, we're going to act. And luckily, California is the eighth biggest economy in the world. So when we do something, it's almost as important as the United States doing something. And so I think the difference is, uh, you know, I I wouldn't say that it's Exxon alone that is stopping this, but you cannot underestimate the enormous political power of Exxon and the rest of the oil industry. They are the richest industry in history. they have not just control of Congress, but because of their disinformation campaign, and I'm going to take on my own profession now, um, they have completely bamboozled the media. And of course, the mass media is the main source of most Americans' information on this. And the mass media has done an embarrassing, professionally embarrassing job of covering this issue for 20 years. I refer to it as journalistic malpractice, because they have taken the sort of, on the one hand, on the other hand, approach to covering this issue. And while that's a sound approach on many uh, issues, um, you know, you, you, you should ventilate different points of view on 
how you reform immigration policy or how you cut the deficit. But it's not on the one hand and on the other hand when it is a matter of science. You should not be pretending that there are two points of view about gravity or evolution or climate change. And unfortunately, our media has done that. And so that has sapped the kind of political pressure that we need. And we were talking earlier about the role of people getting into the streets and voting and voting out the, the uh, politicians who aren't doing the right thing. Americans cannot do that as long as they are really confused about the real stakes here. And, final point, uh, the solutions. If Americans knew how attractive, economically attractive, these solutions are, I think that would make an enormous difference. Next question. We're delighted uh, to have a young member coming up. People always think the Commonwealth Club is old and stuffy, so we're particularly happy to have some young people here tonight. And a scout to boot. Yes. Uh, I'm in the Boy Scouts, and I was wondering what I should do within my troop to to be more sustainable. Be more sustainable. Scott Harmon. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> we are. Thank, thank you. Uh, we are actually uh, about to start um, a pilot program uh, within Cub Scout packs, Boy Scout troops, and Venture crews uh, on the East Coast and on the West Coast uh, to try out some of these ideas. So uh, one of the things we're doing is an e-waste recycling program the scouts will go door-to-door and collect uh, e-waste from people. And we have a company that does that for a living that's teamed with us uh, to teach the boys uh, and, and the girls how to uh, dispose of that, uh, how to basically uh, uh, reuse it or uh, recycle it, uh, and what's involved. Uh, we're also doing an, uh, an LED um, CFL light sales program. So the scouts can learn the business case uh, between incandescent lights and CFL bulbs and LEDs, and what's the money behind that? It actually makes more sense to have LED lights in your house than anything else. And you, over a 10 or 15 year period, you save 20,000 bucks. So what you can do is you can tell me the name of your troop, and if you wanna be uh, involved in a pilot, uh, we can hook you up and let you try this stuff, and we'd love to hear uh, what you think of it. I'm in Troop 88. Troop 88, all right, perfect. In so. what city, what city are you? San Francisco. San Francisco. All right. All right. All right. You will be getting a call. All right. We got, we got some uh, fist pumps in the back from Troop 88. Okay. Uh, next question, please. Thanks for coming. Um, at least two of you are suggesting that it's going to be a popular uprising is, is the main way, to, or the most likely way we'll be able to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. But when you take surveys of Americans, you find that you know, Americans rank at last climate change last, you know, they give them 20, 20 issues and they rank climate change last. Uh, given that, do you think that is a reasonable way it's going to be solved? And if so, how can we get people to care enough to have the kind of, you know, popular uprising we need? I, can I tackle that? You wouldn't expect me to tackle this one, but I, I will try. Uh, I, you know, I, I mean, the government has a role, and I'm not even going to talk about the government. Uh, I think that, uh, that kids... Uh, getting educated and in multiple ways through scouts and through what you're doing and then facing their families to, to listen to what they know uh, is a really important thing. And, and having some things to tell their families they need to do differently, uh, like my son was doing for me, is also critical. And so, you know, the kids are key to making that happen. The other thing that I see happening is that business is changing. And I just, the reason I was almost late is I was in Seattle at a, uh, a forum of 60 
chief sustainability officers for billion-dollar-plus companies. And we were talking about, for two days, you know, what everybody's doing. And there's a growing number of CEOs that understand now, uh, sort of following, um, you know, the Patagonia. It, it, Patagonia makes clothing. They, they are very, very uh, sustainable in their, their thinking and strategy. Mm-hmm. They've changed. They were instrumental in changing Walmart's idea of how they should behave. So uh, CEOs now are learning very quickly that uh, being sustainable means that you cut costs, which makes you more profitable, and actually you can create new revenue from products that are viewed as sustainable. So you know, cutting costs and growing revenue is what CEOs are all about. So uh, companies are engaging with their employees and teaching their employees about what they can do. So grassroots is what's going to have to happen. So what you're doing is, is key. Uh, what you know, scouts can do to teach their families is key. What employees can do uh, to take that home to their families is key. And the governments, I wish they would do something, but they're going to sort of watch as this happens and then they'll probably take credit for you know, some of the things that occurred. But we have to do this. And remember also, apropos your point about that, that poll that supposedly Americans ranked climate change at 20th. First of all, always beware of polls. As someone who's written about polls for 20 plus years, they are generally advanced to, um, they're generally rather uh, cited in order to advance a political agenda. But let's even accept that it might be true. I would reckon that if you had uh, polled Americans in 1959 and asked them, how important is uh, civil rights? Or uh, if you would have polled Americans in 19. What, 10? How important is women's suffrage? First of all, they would have only polled men. Uh, so <laughs> the point is, again, you don't need the majority. Right. The majority is not usually the one that changes a society. Right. It's a dedicated, organized minority. Let's wrap up by just asking quickly, who are some people on the stage that you respect, principled actors that you think are really having having an impact. Alec? Other than Al Gore. Can't, Al Gore's not, can't cite okay. Al Gore, but who are, who are people that you think are really making an impact in government or in business uh, that you really r- admire on, on the climate stage? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, there, I, I, people have asked me that before. I, I, all the time I say, oh, this guy's my hero. But then when people ask me, I forget. Um, <laughs> in terms of, like, government or business, um, Okay, my mind is totally blanking. You want me to answer and you can You think? can go first. Yeah. All right, so let me, let me, I'll bail you out here. Yeah, I, thank you. I think, sure, I think that, uh, that uh, Bill McDonough, William McDonough, uh, who wrote Cradle to Cradle, uh, is an enormous uh, uh, factor going forward because he's able to explain to people uh, how to uh, recycle everything that you have now and those, use those materials you know, again and again and again so that you're not you know, digging things out of the ground and then using them and then throwing them back in the ground as trash. Now he's right now in China uh, working with the mayor of uh, Beijing on how to expand the size of Beijing by 50% but to make it sustainable. So uh, you know, he's a huge you know, hero of mine. He's also an Eagle Scout, by the way. <laughs> and and Jagar Shah, which I mentioned before at the Carbon War Room, because uh, you know he's tackling you know seemingly unsolvable problems and you know picking twenty people and figuring out you know what you can do to make that change and changing it. So there's there's two. So 
Back Mark Hurstgard, you, you've written about, we'll give Alec one more minute. Mark Hurstgard, you've written a lot of people, interviewed a lot of people. Who do you think really is, is on the top shelf? I think uh, Sir David King, who I mentioned earlier, is uh, probably second only to Al Gore in the role that he's played in awakening people to the problem internationally. Uh, I think former Governor Schwarzenegger, and especially his top environmental aide, a gentleman named Terry Tamanen, with whom I was lucky to share a stage in Los Angeles last week, I think what they've done has been incredibly important, along with uh, former uh, State Assemblywoman uh, Fran Pavley, who pushed through the first climate change law here in California. Um, but I also admire very much my longtime colleague and friend, Bill McKibben, and his uh, young people at uh, 350.org, and all of the activists uh, at Sierra Club and elsewhere who won that incredible victory over climate change. I think they are pointing the way forward towards uh, real meaningful political change. You're talking about stopping coal plants. Stopping coal, but there's, they are, I can't, go too much farther on that because it's a story that I'm working on now and it's not ready to be public, but let's just say that was only the first act. Alec Lures? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there, what's that? We're going to say something. Yeah, okay. people you admire in the class. Yeah. <laughs> there are just a, a lot of people, Bill McKimmon is one I was, I was going to mention. I mean, there are just so many people. One I could mention really quick is um, just last week I was in Salt Lake City uh, for th this event, uh, this, this um, young activist named Tim DeChristopher. Um, a couple of years ago, he, at, at this, this auction of public land, um, the BLM was auctioning off um, like public land to basically to oil and gas companies, um, the, and the, the auction was starting off at like three cents an acre. Um, which is just crazy. And, and it was basically like President Bush's like last-minute <clears throat> gift to all of his buddies before he went out. It was on Election Day in 2008. Um, and Tim Christopher, he came in. He was like 23 at the time. He came in, and he ended up bidding in that auction. Uh, he, was, he was kind of pulled into the auction, and he, he was just sitting there watching that, and he couldn't stand for it any longer. And he ended up buying uh, $1.8 million worth of land <laughs> with no intention to pay it because it was an illegal auction, and, and they were auctioning off this, this public land to people who were going to do you know, fracking and, and put up oil, oil wells and all this, this crazy stuff. And um, he, was, he was indicted for stopping that auction and for going into it with no intention to pay um, within, within a couple months, and, and they actually did um, govern that that was an illegal auction. Um, but Tim's trial just began last week after two years of delay, and um, the judge didn't even let him bring up climate change defenses or the fact that he was doing this for future generations or anything, and he was, um, and he was convicted, and his sentence is um, up to 10 years in prison because of that act. But he was saying you know, that was his act of civil disobedience, you know, taking on something bigger than himself for the sake of future generations. And, and that, that was his act, and that was his, his, um, his civil disobedience. Civil we have to disobedience. Wrap it, we yeah, have to wrap, we have to wrap it up, up there. quick. So, yes, he's a hero. <laughs> Our thanks to Alec Lures, a 16-year-old climate activist, Mark Hertzgard, author of Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth, and Scott Harmon, an advisor to Boy Scouts of America. I'm Greg Dalton, and thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Mm -hmm.